This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. All right, welcome back to another From the Deck Plates edition of the Proceedings Podcast, where we take time to dive into topics that explore perspectives, opinions, and the experiences of a variety of enlisted naval professionals. I'm your host, Paul Kingsbury, retired fleet mass chief and co-director of outreach for the U.S. Naval Institute. And today I'm on site at the headquarter for Helicopter Sea Combat Wing Atlantic. And with me is Mass Chief Shane Gibbs and Chief Petty Officer Wayne Popolsky, whose article, Lessons from a Unique Disaster Response, was featured in this month's professional notes section of Proceedings Magazine. So, guys, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. How's everything going? Yeah, good. Thanks for having us. Yeah. All right. So, we had a short bio at the end of the article, but let's uh, learn a little bit about you guys. So, Shane, tell us a little bit about yourself and a brief overview of your career. came in the Navy in uh, 1997, uh, undesignated, uh, worked on a flight deck for a couple years, being an ABF, transitioned into uh, combat systems, became a radioman, and at that point, I was exposed to being a surface rescue swarm for a couple years on Enterprise. Felt very junior varsity watching helicopter guys take off all day, so cross-rated AW in 2002, and then uh, it's just been a wild ride from there ever since. Been East Coast, West Coast, everywhere in between. All right, Wayne, how about you? Uh, came in in 2004 as a corpsman, so been in a little over 17 years now. Started off as just a generic corpsman and then found out about flying SAR corpsman. Submitted a package in 2005 into six. Been doing it ever since. I've done conventional carrier. I've done special operations. Uh, I've done inland search and rescue. I'm one of the community managers now, and I'm also the Navy's liaison officer to the Joint Trauma System. Awesome. So, yeah, you guys probably seen and done a lot of cool things in the communities you serve and the things you do. So, thanks for what you're doing in the service. So, let's get into your article. It basically starts with a overview of the 2019 Hurricane Dorian operation. You summarize, you know, the effects of that operation. The relief effort resulted in eight search and rescue tactical evacuation missions with 108 survivors recovered and transported, 417 passengers transported, 29,000 pounds of food and water delivered, and 203,000 or so pounds of cargo delivered. So pretty decent evolution there and involved and complicated. It's easy to put those stats in there, but it takes a lot to get that done, and that's where your perspective comes in. So. Real quick, just for the aviators that listen to this, so when we first briefed this and we've given this talk once or twice before to the Joint Trauma System, we're like, oh, you know, eight missions is actually not a lot. And as you read through the article and you start to notice just to get to our environment to operate in, you couldn't quantify how many missions you were doing because the entire evolution that day was a mission. So eight's like actually not a lot. And if you talk to like some other services, I'm like, oh, those are puny numbers. Yeah. But in, in all actuality, there was probably hundreds of things that happened during that one specific day. Okay. And we just classified each day as a SAR mission because of how to get there, how to get back, and the craziness that was happening okay. once you were operating in that environment. And then, had either of you been involved in this kind of operation before? Uh, I did Bande Aceh uh, okay. back in 2005 uh, in the Pacific. So it was very 
similar, uh, not quite as catastrophic, uh, or don't tell that to the Bahamians because yeah. it was really catastrophic, but you know, Bondiacha was a much larger piece of landmass. So that and, and HSC Wingland is actually on the hook 365, 24-7 via Northcom. Uh, the focus obviously is always Hatterdiska type stuff for hurricane relief, Katrina and things of that nature. Uh, but it's actually snow, flood, you name it. So if Northcom calls, we've always got a, a constant group package kind of ready to go. All right. Obviously, when we go through these things, like you guys know, we talked about that as a former nuke. We're always big about do the evolution. You do the briefing process, you execute, and then you follow up and what debrief and get the lessons learned. So one of your quotes in the article out of the lessons learned, your perspective was the relief effort suggests that crews are not ready to operate remotely in a wartime environment from an island base. So, Shane, can you summarize um, basically the focus goals and your experience with the initial challenges of that early operation stage and how that started leading to these lessons learned in your perspective? The challenge is getting out of Norfolk, getting to Homestead Air Force Base in, in this uh, particular case, you know, working on an Air Force Base, an Air Force Reserve Base, you know, those inter-service challenges, they're always going to be there. So working through some of those joint type environment challenges, command structure, you name it supply systems, different terminology, things of that nature. And then this particular set at Dorian was operating from continental United States to a foreign territory or a foreign nation, sovereign nation. So it was a Hatter-Disca combo that, to our knowledge, has never been done before. So those things were very challenging. From an operational perspective, we train for warfare and we don't apply the lessons, briefing types of things to warfare. We thought, you know, people like to think this is a different mission set. Briefing is briefing. Whether yeah. you're scramming a reactor or you're responding to a fire, a checklist is a checklist. So I don't think we're really poised to kind of adjust fires, if you will, very quickly. Because a lot of people want to say, oh, well, this is Hatter or this is Disco or that's warfare. When you're doing helicopter personnel recovery... TACAVAC, MEDAVAC, doesn't matter what you call it. What we're doing is picking people up and putting people down and taking care of people and getting people out of bad situations and delivering food and supplies and things of that nature. We do the same thing for Marines as we're going to do for civilians. It's just different colors of money. But execution-wise, it's not different mission sets. So the function and the tasks are all common. It's just they how you apply be. them. Yeah, and like I think you could apply this to Iraq Afghanistan, right? Like from within weeks of being in the country, we own the operational environment. Well, what happens when you don't own the operational environment. And that's exactly what happened in the Bahamas. We don't own the Bahamas. They are a sovereign nation that occasionally helps us, and they like China as well, which we learned down there. And there was a lot of assumptions. Hey, you'll get fuel there. You'll get food there. You'll Someone will have a phone there for you. There was none of that. But what happens when we go to war? We establish all that stuff, yeah. and we plan for it. We, we didn't. So okay. it was kind of like, hey, when you get to this island chain that could potentially be in you know, a certain South Sea. Yep. What are we going to do? Okay. And there was there was too many assumptions that kind of were like, all right, this isn't going to work. And yeah. the, because the it wasn't a war fighting mm-hmm. evolution, but the challenges for helicopters and, and moving people around and logistics and comms, they became readily apparent in this environment, which is, as Wayne said, is going to be just like in a warfare environment. But in a warfare environment, we're going to show up with all that stuff. Why aren't we showing up to these things with that? And that was kind of the purpose of our article. All right, Wayne, let's shift to the section of the article about the ad hoc evacuation missions. Talk to us about those. Yeah, so we were flying, uh, the first day we were flying in a crew construct where we were a little short on SAR Corman getting down there. So we were extending their crew day. And the mission was, hey, we don't we don't really know what the mission is. So we're going to, we're just going to put you on the aircraft. You're going to fly there. You're going to drop some stuff off. 
and then see if you can find a medevac mission or just pick someone up. It turned into you had no idea what was going to happen. We'd go to turn over food and water, and they put 15 people who were all sick in the back of the aircraft. So it kind of brought up if you're not always flying mission capable, then you're not going to be able to meet every mission set that could be tasked upon you. That happened a couple of times. Um, in one specific case, we were tasked with moving blood and water to this little outstation um, or this little field hospital. And I didn't have the right drugs to take care of a patient that they asked me for. On paper, I'm supposed to have those drugs, but we didn't due to funding constraints. And we had to turn the patient down. And I tried to coordinate a medevac asset to come pick them up later. And I learned that the patient expired. It's not on us. That was probably going to happen anyway. But it kind of was like, all right, well, if I was flying fully mission capable, I would have been able to take that mission. So there was a lot of ad hoc stuff like that too, or we were configured to only transport people and then we get there and those people had already been moved and they're like, all right, I have this entire pallet full of drugs and water that needs to go figure that out right now. And it's like, oh, I can't. I need to figure something else out. Your article also discusses issues with communication, right? So that's clearly a key enabler, disabler of any operation or evolution across the spectrum of naval missions and functions and tasks. So go ahead, Shane, dive in here and explain those challenges. So... It goes back to my statement on the previous question. When you go into a combat situation or a combat support situation, you have normally the radios required. It's easier to get things because it's a combat mission because we're a combat entity or a, or a warfighting entity. When you go into a hat or disc mission, it's like, well, you really don't need all of those things you need for warfare uh, in order to go make this mission happen. When, in, as I said before, the same exact challenges for helicopters are the same at Hatterdiska as it will be for warfare, minus people shooting at us. I mean, that's really, that's the nuts and bolts of it. We, you know, everyone has budget constraints. Everyone has requirements that are necessary and good requirements, but go unfunded on the daily, thousands possibly. But it really exposed us, as Wayne alluded to, is there is no telecommunication system there. All the cell phone towers are down. I mean, we ended up using garment in reach, you know, commercial off the shelf okay. stuff that we use for hiking and things like that. I mean, personal usage type stuff. We use the WhatsApp to coordinate a lot of flight scheduling and things of that nature because that actually kind of worked in a, you know, some data burst capabilities. But we really went almost, you know, Morse code signal flag type mentality compared to what we're kind of used to orienting with having crypto and R210s and yeah. all the military so, spec hardware. Some of it has to, so we, we are, it goes back to owning an environment. When we own the environment, we have the ability to have over the horizon communication. Well, if a ship can't come close to that environment or all of your SATCOMs are being tied up to other AORs, you don't have over-the-horizon capability. So what do we do? And we're at the senior NCO level and the chief and above level and even like skippers and above. Everyone knows what the future fight it's going to happen. But that environment is able to be mimicked right now where, you know, you're not landlocked. You can't get in there. Your ship isn't going to come thousands of nautical miles from the closest uh, WES. How are we going to talk to them if we already don't have enough of that capability now? So what are we going to do? And he, we mentioned the Garmin entry. So the command that I was at previous, we were required to have an Iridium satellite capable way of communicating. And it was mostly just because they would drop us off in these mountains where we didn't have repeaters. And if we crashed or I needed to talk to the sheriff or whatever, that's, that's how we would communicate. And it works great because once we were 15 to 16 miles off the coast of Miami, and within 10 miles of Nassau to get our first kiss of fuel, we were in this like blackout window. And that's like not where you want to be when Jesus comes kind of deal. Like <laughs> yeah. and this, they have no idea. That's 
you know, the southern part of the Bermuda Triangle, like we still haven't found things that have gone missing. And we're having, you know, six helicopters launch in a blackout window. Okay. I don't think that's safe. So, Wayne, let's jump into this, the successes or challenges during the emergency clinical medicine piece. This was your focus area. Yeah. So, like, as a medic, a military medic, a corpsman, you know, everyone thinks trauma, trauma, trauma. And uh, a really good quote was, like, trauma is trauma for the first 24 hours. And then after they've sustained those injuries, if they haven't died, they're a medical patient. They're an ICU patient. And that's what we saw. We weren't there during the storm because the helicopters needed to already be there for the fight. We okay. responded 24 hours later. So the Coast Guard had already moved, already critically traumatic injured. So we were seeing, you know, I haven't had my hypertensive medications. I'm pregnant. I have this cut on my foot that is now infected. You know, we removed a guy's tooth because a wall collapsed on him and he basically was taking gum and bohemian rum and killing his pain by hiding the root of the tooth with gum and then drinking his sorrows away. And it's like, okay, so what happens after these guys and girls are on a beach and in this next fight and now they have sustained some ca- some casualties, but some people have lived too. They're not going to be trauma patients. They're going to be sepsis and burns and dehydration and belly issues. And I ate bad food and that bird that I ate was probably gross. And dysentery. So, and, and, dys- and dysentery and all these different things. So that was – it was kind of weird because we train so heavy for trauma when you're doing a workup for a deployment. The more we're doing with soft, the carrier sustaining it, we never like – you know, I picked up – you know, 35 people in the med from a ship coming from Libya that's trying to get to France. You know what I mean? Like, we, we don't ever train for that, but that's what we're seeing every day. Yeah. So do you see that we're getting slowly out of that kind of mindset of that, the mission set that we've been doing over the last 10, 15, 20 years? And well, you know, I mean, that, that's a that's an interesting point. And the community and the Navy in particular is struggling with that. This has been you know, for 20 years of modern helicopter combat and, and the war. It's been a landlocked war, mm-hmm. and the Navy's been very much in a support role. This next thing is all a Navy-Marine Corps fight, and the Army and Air Force are trying to figure out how they're going to get into the into – How the, are they going to support, support us? Support us. Okay. And so that's a very dynamic culture shift with all the things that go with that. What we have noticed is is that for helicopters and what we do, it doesn't change from Hatter to Disca. It doesn't change from a support role. It doesn't change from a warfighting role. And, and we're very slowly pulling out of this – fog of a little bit of we're not in the fight and the next thing we're going to be is we will be in the fight and and that's that's kind of our concern whether it's it's trained just for trauma or trained just for you know the the high-end fight helicopters bring a very low-end capability but a capability without it goes into that calm black hole without helicopters you ain't moving nobody in the fleet in my statement and in writing that I'm not trying to take, because I have fully invested in the joint trauma system and what tactical combat casualty care has done for this, this country and NATO. Like we have the highest survivability rates of any war. We're training everyone from the PS and admin to the trauma surgeon on the same level of care to treat preventable causes of death. But the problem is that's not going to be the future fight. There will be key people there who are going to see that and they're going to be able to take care of that. But if, what if some like ship sinks? They're not all going to need tourniquets. You know, they're going to be pretty sick from slamming salt water for two and a half days. I think we have some people who are looking at that. I know a lot of the services are, but it's the same thing for every workup. You know, trauma, 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 trauma. And then you go on deployment, your trauma surgeon's sitting there the whole time on the ship with the fleet surgical team drinking coffee, and they're taking care of heart attacks and COVID, right. you know, and respiratory distress and all these other things that caught us kind of with our pants down. And on that, that note, 
what we're looking at is, and what we're concerned about in the helicopter community, HSC in particular, is there is no plan for the next Indianapolis. And that is a very real possibility. And that's what we're concerned about. And that is very uncomfortable, very inconvenient, and very expensive to even consider. And so there are probably people wargaming it way above my pay grade, but everybody needs to be thinking about that. How do you recover 400 people out of the water? So we're starting to touch on the things that I kind of want to dive into, um, translating basically this scenario into the Western Pacific theater. I think we've touched on what I would call, what I heard called like comms denied environment in a different form. How do you, with what you can talk about, how do you see this playing out under the current approach and levels of readiness and resourcing? And then talk a bit about how we use the lessons learned you described to try to prepare and improve the training. Shane, we'll start with you. Again, it goes back to helicopters are one of those things where it's like a policeman or a fireman. You really don't think about buying it, paying for it, supporting it, training it, equipping it until you really need it and they don't show up in time. You know, helicopters have, to my knowledge, have had a pretty uh, pretty decent reliability rate because they're one of the newer airframes. They're not legacy Hornets, right? Other yeah. people got much bigger problems. We like to say, are those first world problems or third and fourth world problems? Mm-hmm. Well, right now in in aviation in particular, in the Navy, the greater Navy, helicopters are kind of a third and fourth world problem. First world problems are Aegis upgrades and all those things that you read about and and get all the big attention and rightfully so. But everything comes at a price. And when you are so focused on high-end capabilities and the high-end fight, which is important, and you kind of neglect that, are we going back to rib boat transfers for everybody? Are you still like putting helicopters and moving parts and people around the battle group? That's a very real concern for us. So- it's not to slam anybody, but the readiness and the resourcing, you know, all we hear is, is that it part of the budget? Does, can you quantify it? Can you, can you justify it? And this things like that. And it's like, yeah, we can all day, but we're still going to lose to Columbia submarines and Seawolf submarines. We're, we're going to lose those, those things within Congress. So you're kind of waiting for something to fall off the table funding wise in order to go do what you got to do uh, and get people ready for that next fight. What concerns us is when the fight, if it comes, we're going to get all the money real quick, but we're not going to have the people and the things ready to kind of spend the money or, or spend those the, the training requirements and things like that. So we got to start looking at that. Uh, and that's some of my bosses are very concerned about, the, like, again, the low-end capabilities that are taken for granted, not being resourced and funded. Well, you got anything off? Yeah, so I, I use this uh, analogy a lot. The United States is the best Rocky movie that's ever, ever happened in every war. Like, we usually get beat up a little bit and then we come back, right? But Kind of looking at the peer-to-peer or near-peer competition from my own learning, like college and going to seminars and stuff like that. Right now, our TNR matrix and our DERS N and DERS M reporting doesn't capture medicine. Yeah, and can you explain what those are? Yeah, training and readiness numbers and then uh, deployment deployment readiness numbers. Okay. So for the Navy and the Marine Corps, and I've heard the Army and Air Force talk about this a bunch as well too, but we don't capture, and I'll, I'll home in on medical readiness. We capture if they're medically ready like their physicals are there. But what about your medical equipment, your training, your TCCC training, your medical training, your competency and proficiency? We don't we don't track that right now. I know there was a congressional mandate from one of the National Defense Authorization Acts, the NDAA, to kind of come up with that. But if like the next war happens sooner than when that congressional mandate was, we're going to lose uh, kind of that battle. And then I understand like we're in this like legacy funding constraint. We're there's net we're not making any more money. Uh, however. Just from this, like adapting lessons learned, if you don't show up ready and then you get the money six months later, well, what happened to that casualty rate the first six months? 
there's probably going to be pretty significantly high. And I know just from reading the stuff that's been in magazines, we're, we have a pretty high casualty rate, the first part of it. So how, how do we combat that? I think we need to shift focus like for the future fight. We need to show up ready, right? Manning's ridiculously difficult right now with COVID and recruiting and colleges and what's in it for me mentality, the WIFA mentality, budget constraints. But there is ways to make people live in the green. You know, so if we know that our future mission set is pushing away from Iraq and Afghanistan, well, then maybe we can shift focus of I'm going to train for Iraq and Afghanistan, how I do my PowerPoints for search and rescue. Okay. And I'm going to focus on search and rescue and shift my focus to that. And one, one big piece I really have from, so I, I caught the early part of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan and we've been living it is you talk about the comms degraded environment. So what happens when we send small detachments where lieutenants and chiefs are your OICs and senior CPOs or SEAs going out on them, and they have to execute command, mission, vision, guidance, alone and afraid with comms degraded environments for periods of 30 plus days. I don't think we're ready for that. I don't think I can have a lieutenant who's 23 years old make Afghanistan and Iraq wartime decisions. We haven't had to do it in a long time. And where do we start to attack that? It's an excellent question, and it drives us up the wall on a daily. In some respects, we live in a very, very risk-averse environment because of the technologies and the comms. I mean, you know, when they did the bin Laden hit, the White House was almost in the room. They just didn't pull the trigger. And so that is now the, the standard of ability to speak. Yeah, someone, and, and, someone's and always watching. Someone's always yeah. watching. Uh, and not that they shouldn't have oversight, but what we're talking about when they throw the switch and all the satellites don't work, I mean, we're going, again, back to World War II, mm -hmm. where a lieutenant is the squadron commander on that detachment for deployed somewhere serving Marines, and a Marine captain is making lethality decisions, or let's say tactical decisions that have strategic impact. So, I mean, we're talking about War of 1812. It was over when the Battle of New Orleans happened, two years' time late, because comms weren't good. We could find ourselves in a 30-day, 10 45-day window where we, there's no carrier pigeons getting from the carriers and places like that where it's going to be there, the command and control is to those outlying areas. So, so to answer one of your questions, like what we could start doing, I think we need to be better educated from the enlisted to the officer level, right? So like not just promoting the, you know, the, the E6, E7 and above, but like a really good educated enlisted man makes a better officer because we can, hey, you're, I'm bump steering you. But so if you look at the CNO's guidance, the MCPOM's guidance, even the Commandant's guidance, like. They're pushing for the future fight, but our mid-level management is nowhere near that because the publications that are still guiding us are telling us to go to the fight for today, not for the fight for tomorrow. If I walked into my ops thing right now and said, hey, we need to be ready to fight in the South China Sea, they're like, we're on the East Coast. But but are we? It could be pretty easy for this entire you know fleet forces aspect to have to shift and bump focus yeah. to go help out that just got wiped away. And it will be a global fight from 100%. what I inform, right? And forces are going to flow from east just to like where you need them, just, just like, like it, it did. did in World War II. And so you, we were talking about SCA in the other room and stuff before, and we have all these schools that tell us to read all these upper management things, but we read it, but we don't articulate that, take it, and put it into the black and white of today. That is our Achilles heel right now. At the 50,000-foot level, Congress... All our joint forces commanders understand that this is this threat, but our current mid-level management doesn't understand it. Okay. So and that's I'm a not, powerful not, observation. I'm not knocking. Like Shane likes to joke around, I'm a pessimistic realist. Yeah. Because if something happens, then it's Christmas. But <laughs> being being, real, being realistic, like we're not ready. And, and, and the other thing, too, on that note is COVID taught us very, very quickly 
that we have a bunch of supposed wartime strategic tactical leaders that could not make a decision because of a virus. So in your article, you also go on and I'll quote, the HSC community is not ready for the force health protection and tactical evacuation response missions. I think we've dove into that. Underfunded commands are failing to meet the doctrine of being advanced life support capable and other functioning tasks, which will put lives at risk. So again, powerful statement. And I think this is great advocacy, right? This is the deck plate perspective. This, as we talked earlier, this stuff doesn't make it up, right? There's so many barriers to these realities getting up to decision makers and the people that make budgetary decisions that can get you resources you need, not just at the congressional level, but staffers and others. So how well informed is the chain command on state of readiness you suggest? I think we touched on that. And then is anyone else bringing this up to the ISIC, to the TICOM? So uh, from, from when this article was written, which was on the way home from Hurricane Dorian and has grown since then, this manifested into HAZREPs, SIRs being dropped specifically when we turned down that one patient. So last year, we received a large pot of money, ordered some newer equipment, which was a plaguing issue in this community. At the end of the fiscal year, we got some U for money, so some unfunded request money. And that got us to the green. So I'm in the green for like the next 18 months, but then it goes to sustainment. Well, it's hard to palm for sustainment because we're in a low budget right now. So like we, that's where this, we're hoping that this will help consider drive the need. Like, look, you get me in the green. I, we joke around like, hey, every April, like hurricane season's coming, so maybe business will be good. But if another hurricane comes, we will be ready this time. But if a war happens, I don't know. I'm not sure because the West Coast doesn't fight hurricanes. So it's really hard to, you know, my West Coast counterparts, they're living in the struggle that we had prior to yeah. the Bahamas. Well, yeah, some so. of the FDNF, they're definitely involved. In oh, they, with the typhoons? Stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. But, yeah. but because they're so close to it, they're almost in like bunker down survival yes. mode. And then hopefully we've got some helicopters. We can go do some work limit, in limited capacities. So there is a disparity between East Coast, West Coast, and FDNF, uh, and the helicopters in particular. Yeah, and the distance to get, right? Oh. So Bahamas compared to having to go down to Indonesia somewhere from Japan is and, huge distance. And there, I, I always, like, our FDNF commands, our two, that, our two HSC FDNF commands, they usually do pretty good because they're continuously living in what we're talking about. You know, like, they're, they are in the WES. But it's getting to them to support them is going to be the problem. Okay. You guys are relatively small community. So you talk, what do they sense out there? What do you hear from them on this kind of problem set? It's a lot of, and I'm not jumping in front of Shane. Like I, I live this every day, but it, it's luck. You go on a deployment, you might get no missions. Okay. Next guy you turned over to, you give him the bad news bears. You're like, oh, I wasted six months. We didn't do anything. And then he was the black, you know, the black cloud, everything happened to him. Yep. Uh, I think we're living in some of that right now. It honestly is all, what is your mission set? And how are you doing it? And the other piece, too, is that you say we're a small community, but the Navy as a whole is going through a huge cultural evolution of what is it we say we do for the money that we spend? Again, a lot of stuff up on the Hill and the Pentagon about taking money away from the Army and the Air Force and shifting it to the Navy, and we're going to get a bigger slice of the pie instead of a 33% kind of thing. Um, we'll see where that goes. But again, we, we've neglected some, some capabilities and some developmental things where it's been neglected for so long that now the upkeep is going to be so much more expensive than it could have been if we had sustained it. Okay. And, and those are past sins. We, we, we got them. We're inheriting them. But from a perspective of helicopters are the low-end kind of group of the aviation people. And so when everybody's worried about growlers and E2 Deltas and yeah. legacy Hornets and things, by the time there's any money available or any attention available, you know we're having our own problems within, internally within our community because East Coast is trying to survive. West Coast yeah. is trying to survive. FDNF is always trying to survive. 
And, and so there is some disconnect even within the community on where are we going? What will we do in the future fight, high-end fight? And we've been exposed yeah. to some Marine Corps stuff that gets into some of those new developing uh, mantras and, and warfare sets that there's work out there. Okay. You know, there's always going to be work for helicopter guys, regardless of what it is. And I think we overcomplicate it to a certain extent yeah. in order to justify Durzan because Durzan drives TNR, which drives money. And so I think we've overcomplicated a lot of things because it's really holding a hover and hoisting people or landing okay. without knocking a helicopter over and delivering and, stuff. You know, looking at it, from a budget perspective, I think when you give someone a piece of paper with a dollar sign on it, it's a tough pill to swallow. But when you look at the second, third, and fourth order effects of how much money I will save, you spend this money now, but then I don't have to spend that much over the next couple of years because sustainment money is budget dust. You know, when you're, you already have a low budget and you got to beg Paul to pay Sally so she can give the $5 that she owes to Jimmy, I think it's, it's just we're in a tough environment right now. Uh, COVID didn't make it any easier, and it's it's really hard to plan for the future fight when you have no money. And at the end of the day, the problem with helicopter people is it's full of helicopter people, and we're so used to doing it on a shoestring budget. Yeah. We're going to get it done. Yeah, we, we joked with the Commodore before, and he always gives, what if I gave you all the money that you wanted in your budget? And I was like, I'd probably use 10% of it, because we're just so used to getting no yeah. money. Uh, you'd be surprised with what we actually like ask for, is compared Com- to other compared communities. Compared to Aegis yeah. upgrades and yeah. a new Rhino okay. or a Joint Strike Fighter. I mean, yeah. Give me one Joint Strike Fighter worth of funding, and you won't have to talk to HSC for about 10 years. Or gotcha. Can use helmet. <laughs> okay. So uh, let's close it out. So over to you guys for any last words or closing thoughts. So Shane? This is an honor and a privilege. You know, this is kind of new territory for a lot of us. Uh, you know, we get some advocacy sometimes with the 06s, occasionally the 07. But, uh, you know, this is reaching out to a much bigger, broader audience. And what I would offer is, is I highly encourage everyone, you know, in the Chiefs mess, as well as the senior enlisted ranks and definitely the officer ranks, put your thoughts on paper. Reach out, talk to other people in other communities because we all got similar problems. They just call them different different names, but we got to work together. You know, and that, that's ultimately I think what, what, what the challenge is going to be is um, there's never going to be enough money. Okay, uh, but, but you got to get your voice and your word out there. It, it's your duty, it's your requirement, it's your it's your oath. Tell the boss what he needs to hear, not what he wants to hear, because that's how we make it better. How about you, Wayne? I really appreciate this opportunity. For anyone that ever knows the, the Wayne Kapowski name, I'm never afraid to stir the pot. Just growing up in New Jersey. I think as you transform from the middle management doing the job every day and you take over a leadership position, and that doesn't need to be rank associated. I had phenomenal E3s that were in charge of me when I was at E1. But you have to advocate for the better of your community no matter the cost. Uh, and I think that that's what a lot of communities need right now and I've been reading proceedings for a long time and a lot of the articles are great you know they're airing their concerns for the future and better of the force so we appreciate this getting published in the podcast to touch on that real fast before we started to record we you know I looked up on your board and you had that article about back pain related to that and what was the success story you said there from that article at yeah, on that. so so the, the the new gunner seat came about as a result of, uh, of uh, us losing first tour sailors. Let's be honest, uh, a couple of admirals and air bosses were like, uh, I just lost a sailor with two hundred hours in the aircraft. Like that's unheard of. What what is going on there? And uh, a couple of air bosses ago, he threw some money at it and said, I want I want to figure out what's going on with this back pain problem. That kind of morphed into we got a a huge amount of money, several millions of dollars, and we've just recently implemented gunner seats in every single Sierra helicopter which is going to see benefits down the line. It's a little too early to tell exactly data and metrics if you're going to save everybody, but uh, 
you know, the work we do is pretty, pretty rough job and it's really hard on the back and the body and things of that nature. But um, an associate of ours wrote an article and that actually kind of kicked started some other people. So just because you have an admiral advocating for you and saying, let's yeah. get some money and get some thought going here, sometimes it's, getting other people to talk yeah, about it yeah, not, not everyone reads, ha- reads HazReps. Nope. Not yep. everyone gets to CSIR. So, you know, when something gets downloaded from the meat and potatoes and kind of the bluff gets put in an article, someone looks at it and goes, hmm, that's interesting. Hey, can you ask some questions about that? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the, the back pain article that came out about a year and a half ago was great. And then... It came out right around the time the money was already palmed to fix the seat, but it was the perfect icing on the cake because it came out right when the seats got installed. And people were like, hey, I heard you guys have new gunner seats. And like people had nothing to do with this community and were interested in it. So. And that's, uh, again, that's the reach of the forum, the Naval Institute, the goal of Proceedings Magazine. So that's good stuff. So, all right, lessons from a unique foreign disaster response is the article. Check it out today in the March edition of Proceedings Magazine. Guys, thanks again for joining me and uh, daring to disrupt and make a positive difference because that's really what we want. We want to help influence our decision makers to make sure we're as prepared and ready as we can for that uh, high-end flight. And thanks for coming in and using the U.S. Naval Institute Forum. Good luck to both of you. Thank, Thank you. you. I appreciate it. All right, everyone. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of From the Deck Plates edition of the Proceedings Podcast. Make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the Proceedings Podcast. And leave us your thoughts and comments in the episode description. Till next time, remember that victory begins at the Naval Institute.